Recently, I had the opportunity to narrate the very fun podcast, Echoes of History, Ragnarok, a historical podcast inspired by the video game Assassin's Creed Valhalla, Dawn of Ragnarok. If you know names like Thor, Loki, and Odin, just wait until you hear the tales of how they came to be and how they came to an end. It's the second season of Ubisoft's popular podcast, Echoes of History. Subscribe to the Echoes of History podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge five all-new episodes narrated by yours truly, as well as the first season about Vikings, available now. You can find the Echoes of History podcast where you're listening to this podcast, so subscribe now. That's Echoes of History, available wherever you listen to podcasts. We at The History Guy are also excited to announce a new way to interact with the team and The History Guy himself at Locals.com. Join The History Guy Guild for your one-stop location to chat with other history fans, get updates on the team, and more. You can join for free or pay as little as $5 a month to get access to live chats with The History Guy, looks behind the scenes, early access to ad-free videos, and more. Find us at thehistoryguyguild.locals.com. We look forward to seeing you there. This episode of Forgotten History is brought to you by Magellan TV, a new kind of streaming service that aims to bring you the best documentaries from around the world. On today's episode, the History Guy talks about some of the foundation of our modern world, how an Italian-American man's vision fundamentally changed the way banks and loans work, and that ever-present blessing and curse of the wallet, the credit card. Without further ado, let me introduce the History Guy. You might never have heard of Amadeo Pietro Giannini, but you have likely benefited from one of his innovations. Because before A.P. Giannini, much of the world operated much differently than it does today. Born in San Jose, California to immigrant parents in 1870, Giannini left business college at the age of 15 because he thought he could do better out in the real world, and he joined his stepfather's produce business, becoming a produce broker in California's rich Santa Clara Valley. By the age of 31, he had become so successful that he was able to sell his stake in his company to his employees and retire. He hoped to indulge his passions for reading and travel. But in 1902, his father-in-law passed away and left his family an interest in the Columbus Saving and Loan Society, which was a small bank in North Beach, California, and so Giannini was asked to join the bank on its board of directors. But when he got into banking, he was disappointed. He found out that banks really only loaned money to people who were already wealthy and who could provide collateral. Giannini was convinced that working-class Americans could benefit from things like home loans and auto loans and small business loans, and while they weren't wealthy and couldn't provide collateral, he thought that they were generally trustworthy people who could be counted upon to repay their loans. But he was unable to convince the rest of the board of directors of this vision, and so in 1904 he resigned from the board of directors and, with some investors, started his own bank. He called his new bank 
the Bank of Italy, and he served those populations that had been previously ignored by banks, in this case largely Italian-American working-class immigrants in San Francisco's North Beach community. He offered this population accounts and loans, and he based his loans not so much on the collateral that they could provide, but on his judgment of their character. And by 1905, his bank had a respectable $700,000 in deposits. In 1906, the Great San Francisco Earthquake hit, and much of the city was leveled in the initial earthquake and then the fires that came afterwards. Giannini's bank, the Bank of Italy, which was housed in a converted saloon building, took real damage in the earthquake, but before the fires could come, he loaded all the deposits from the vault and the bank records in a wagon and took them out of town to his residence where they would be safe from the fire. He did that in a garbage wagon in order to hide what he was doing to deter thieves. That decision to protect the deposits ended up being monumental. While larger banks had vaults that would protect their deposits in the fire, when a fire burned over one of those vaults, it would be several weeks before it cooled down enough that you could open it, and most of their buildings were destroyed, and so the banks were unable to open. But the destroyed city was in desperate need of capital to rebuild, and because he had protected his deposits and records, Giannini could open up right away. Initially just using two beer barrels and a plank as a desk, he started serving his own depositors and making new loans. Because of the devastation, a lot of things have been destroyed, including people's records and even identification, and so many of those loans Giannini made on nothing but a handshake and a smile, and yet he was very proud to say later that every one of those loans was repaid. And the Bank of Italy played a major and important role in helping to rebuild the city of San Francisco, and at the same time, increased trust in the community in his bank. And it was largely because his bank focused on smaller, middle-class depositors that the Bank of Italy was able to withstand the 1907 bankers' panic, which caused many other banks to close their doors. Giannini was a pioneer of branch banking in America. He saw it as a way to get closer to the community, to expand the depositor base, and to protect banks from instability. He studied the system that was used in Canada, and so in 1909, when the state of California changed the law and authorized the opening of branch banks, he immediately opened a bank in San Jose. By 1919, the Bank of Italy was the United States' first statewide branch banking system, with 28 branches in the state of California. Giannini made his success serving underserved communities, like immigrant communities and small businesses. He believed that money should not sit idle and that it should benefit everyone. And his efforts not only greatly impacted growth in the American West, but banking policy. If, for example, you've ever had a monthly repayable home or auto loan, then you have A.P. Giannini to thank for that innovation. Prior to Giannini's vision, banking in America was generally a service that was only offered to the very wealthy. But Giannini himself was not a fan of great wealth. His banks were usually owned by the employees. He often didn't accept a salary, and when he was offered a large bonus one year of over a million dollars, he quickly donated it to the University of California and created the Giannini Foundation of Agricultural Economics. When he passed away in 1949, he left an estate of just $500,000. Now, that was not a small sum at the time, but it was far less than the millions that he could have earned had he wanted to. 
Money itch is a terrible thing, he was quoted as saying. I've never had that trouble. Giannini's actions affected America in so many ways. For example, his bank bought bonds that allowed the building of the Golden Gate Bridge. He made the loan to Walt Disney that allowed him to make the movie Snow White, the world's first full-length animated motion picture. He helped to develop the California wine industry. In 1939, he made a loan to two inventors who wanted to build oscilloscopes, and they used that money to start a company that originally sold testing equipment. Their names were William Hewitt and Dave Packard, and of course the company today is called HP. And Giannini never forgot his Italian roots. After the Second World War, he arranged loans to help rebuild the destroyed Fiat factories in Italy and rebuild that country's economy. A.P. Giannini's impact on banking for the little guy, on economic development in the West, and on international banking was profound. He is generally recognized as one of the most influential bankers and businessmen of the 20th century. And if his character sounds somewhat familiar, it might be because a director named Frank Capra based a character named George Bailey on A.P. Giannini in the 1946 film, It's a Wonderful Life. And if you're wondering why you've never heard of this Bank of Italy, that might be because in 1930, Giannini merged with another bank in Los Angeles with the goal of creating branches nationwide, and he decided that the other bank's name more fit the new vision. And so since 1930, the Bank of Italy has been known as the Bank of America. You might have heard of that one. And its founder, A.P. Giannini, deserves to be remembered. Now's the part of the episode where we get to chat with the history guy. A little bit about what we just heard, what we're going to hear, and some behind-the-scenes stuff you only get to hear about on the podcast. It's really interesting to me that a man who had such an impact on modern society and, of course, modern banking, got into banking essentially by accident. Yeah, totally. He he had retired, you know, as doing commodities, and he was going to go travel Europe and read books and retire and just happened to be put on the, the board of this bank and say, hey, this isn't how things are supposed to go, and then ended up transforming the banking industry. And he just as easily could have sailed off to Europe and spent his time going to museums. And I think that that really speaks to the kind of singular person that he was. I'm not going to say that he was the only person who was thinking about that at the time or the only person who could have done it, but he was positioned in the right place and he had the vision to see even the barest piece of what our modern society has become. At a time when very few seemed to be seeing the same vision. So you can't say that he was unique because they ended up changing quite a few laws. That He wasn't the only one that was seeing this. But, I mean, certainly he was the voice or one of the most powerful voices to make these changes. And he was well positioned to do so. I mean, you're right. the, the earthquake and fire had a lot to do with how he was able to transform banking. So some of that was just happenstance. But a huge amount of it seems to have been his vision, his force of will, changing the whole industry and, and the industry following him. Yeah, it's it's not that, uh, you know, when you say like an, an accident of history, we're not really working with averages. You know, it's not like we can be like, ah, oh, well, this is outside of the, the normal range of things that happened. History only happened, you know, the one way it did. Of course, there's different opinions on how it happened and why it happened and what people were thinking. And there's room for us to talk about it. Otherwise, we, we probably wouldn't have this show. Yeah, <laughs> no reason yeah. for the history. Uh, guy, but yeah. it, it's unique that he was both in that position and was someone who could do it. He had the resources, he had the vision, and he was clearly looking forward far enough that as soon as they opened branch banking in California, he was like, instantly. Yeah. 
Well, I, I think he was pushing for that. And as soon as it was opened, he was able to take advantage of that. And that helped to push for doing it nationwide. And that helped to take essentially this little bank of Italy that he had started there and become the Bank of America. And it had it had a lot to do with his ability to see something. Like like many people, you know, he saw an opportunity. He saw people who had a need, and he found a way to supply that need. But what's incredible to me is that he really saw it despite what everyone else thought and then was willing to just go forward with it no, ma- no matter yeah. the consequences and the difficulties. And, I mean, I think that there's always people like that in history. I think there's a lot of people that, you know, they, they look at the status yeah. quo yep. and they think it doesn't have to be yeah, that some, way just because Some people think look and they say why. Other people look and say why not. And, and he, he just said, you know, why not do it this way? And for someone who, who didn't seem to seek a lot of personal gain for that, he didn't really want to have his name in public. He wasn't really looking to get rich. He just was doing things that he thought should be done. It it is amazing that as much money as he could have made, because I mean he certainly could have been among I mean most wealthy people of the period for sure. I mean he could have been you know a, a John Jacob Astor or a Carnegie. He certainly could have chosen to have profited much more from what he did than he did. He shared his yeah. profits with his employees. He shared his profits with his depositors. Uh, he lived a comfortable life, I'm quite sure. But he, you know, he said, money itch is a terrible thing, and I've never suffered from it. And that's, that's incredible, too. I think a lot of times when you have someone who made changes, then you go find a lot of picadillos in their life and the flawed humans and stuff. I, I think A.P. Giannini was what he appeared to be, and that was a person doing you know, what he thought was the right thing to do. I mean, they talk about, you know, like money corrupts. And I mean, wherever you uh, wherever you stand on that philosophically, this idea that like once you have lots of money, you can do so many things with it. And of course, you kind of get to a point where there's almost nothing you can't do. And for him, he seemed to have a relatively, he knew what he wanted mm-hmm. and he wasn't always looking for more. He didn't make money just for making money's sake, which I think you could accuse some other people of doing. Um, and he, he seems really to have thought that for him... It was making. It was. It was about making something new in the world. It wasn't just. <laughs> I mean, his success had a lot to do with the fact that after the earthquake, he was the you know the only yeah. guy out there that could loan that bigger money. banks uh, couldn't access their money, and he could. Yeah, that's. Uh, it makes yeah. you think that he was uh, awfully clever for putting all that money in the wagon. Yeah. Well, if the wagon had been robbed, you know, maybe you would think I mean, <laughs> that's it's a, fair. You know, the, yeah. the football coach who says, go for the Hail Mary pass, you know, if, if they make it, then they're the hero. If they don't, they're not. So, uh, you know, maybe if some things have gone differently, then he wouldn't have changed the world and we would never know his name. So there, there's certainly got to be some luck involved in, in how he was able to change the world, yeah. too. But he was he was a man of vision. And he you can just tell from the stuff that he invested in Definitely. that he had a vision of that saying that, you know, capital should be used to change the world. And I'm going to that's. The reason you have bank deposits is so that that money can be used to make the world a better place and pay those depositors back with interest. It is incredible. Even just what he invested in. He invested in, you know, like the the making of Snow White and HP and all this stuff that is a huge deal today. And, you you know, all this stuff that played its own role in history and society and even had a huge impact. Even if he was just a banker who had, you know, kind of invested in these dreams, he'd be worth talking about. Uh, but this is a dude who, besides all of that, did all of these other amazing things, and for such amazing reasons. You know, he he gets that, like, bonus of a million dollars, and he's like, all right, immediately going to donate that. And he, he died comfortably, and we're, we're not going to say mm-hmm. that, you know, he he didn't didn't have money, but he didn't hoard it. It wasn't like when he died, he had a huge collection of oh, money. Oh, not at all, no. Yeah, yeah he... He is someone who could have, from what he accomplished, have been much more famous than he was. He could have, from what he accomplished, been much more wealthy than what he was, and that wasn't important to him. 
It's yeah. why, you know, when we talk about why we should remember people and how people do get forgotten, I mean, I think most people would say that that this, that Giannini is worth remembering and that he did stuff that was worth doing because, he, you know, he did good things in this world. Yeah. He's worthy of even of emulating. And part of the reason that he has been kind of forgotten is because he was willing to be forgotten. Uh, to him, it wasn't about, I mean, you yeah. know, his name's on a lot of things. I- I don't know how comfortable he would be that we were still making episodes about him on the history guy. Yeah. But I mean, that's one of the reasons that we love the history guy is that this is stuff that deserves to be remembered. It's a great story of a guy who made a difference and, and didn't seek out to get fame. And it's it, it's not like he's totally forgotten or anything like that. There's a lot of like grade schools named after A.B. Giannini and some other things. But I mean, he was just there. Are people go stick their name on everything and we remember them and maybe more than they should be. And there are people who just don't care where their name is that maybe did more than we realize. And that's one of the reasons that we have the history guy. Deserves to be remembered. You know, one of the things that I was thinking about as I was listening to this episode, if if you're just a person today and you're thinking about banks, you don't really think about the Bank of America as like a, a particularly, I mean, you think about it the way you think about other banks. Mm-hmm. You don't think that it's like working on a fundamentally different philosophy from other banks. And this isn't to talk badly about the Bank of America at all. But from, you know, that kind of view of history, uh, the Bank of America today, I mean, it's it's kind of normal for what banks are in yeah. the modern era. Well, I mean, it might, that might be a sign of how much he transformed the industry so that everybody kind of follows along. But and of course, you know, AP's been gone a long time now, so <laughs> Bank of America is no longer running necessarily by his principles. But also, uh, you know, as it grew to become a national bank, it was going to lose some of that handshake sort of flavor that was part of the nature of how he how he grew the Bank of Italy. And I, I think he probably understood that. But uh, yeah, it is uh, the fact that now, and you know, different banks do operate a little bit differently. But the fact that now that you can get a car loan at almost any bank in the country is a sign uh, that uh, he didn't just transform his bank; he transformed the way the whole world does credit. Yeah, and and he brought credit to a completely you know new group of people who needed it. Yeah, yeah, who needed it and used it to do amazing things. And what's really special about him is that you know he didn't seem to have like seen this as ah, here's a whole new market that's untapped that we can make all kinds of money off of, which I mean they have of course and, you know they've made tons of money banks have made tons of money based on people's deposits and loans, but when he did it he thought that you know if I trust people they'll trust me mm-hmm. and we'll be able to do things that will benefit everybody. Yeah, um, you know uh, the idea of a bank fundamentally is that it's supposed to use community funds to help to build the community in a way that serves everybody. And if you do it well, that's how it works. You know, they deposit money, they earn money on their deposits because you are lending that money in things that are going to grow the community and pay back with interest. And that's what allows you to pay interest back to your depositors. Uh, and that whole vision is still a vision that works. I mean, we, you know, we don't necessarily see it as, as evenly. But I mean, he had that idea that says that these are people that not only need loans, but those loans are going to change things in such a way that it's going to grow everybody's business. And that's going to be good for me and you and everybody. And that's that 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 vision. It's not like banks didn't operate that way before. It's just they only operated that way for a small class of people who you know knew each other and uh, you know shared uh, the, the the faith that they were going to pay back because they were all you know born rich. Yeah, and I mean that that helped them. And to some extent, you can kind of I mean you can kind of see how that system developed. I mean they were the people who needed loans because you know they were the ones dealing with large sums. 
I don't think he ever claimed that you shouldn't loan money to rich people. He <laughs> yeah. simply claimed that, that the, the idea of banks loaning money shouldn't be limited to rich people. Yeah, and that other people would be willing to pay those loans back and that they could pay those loans back. Mm -hmm. And that they could. It really yeah, And they did is... even when other banks were having trouble getting people to pay loans back because of crashes and et cetera. Yeah. Because he you know, did his loans on a handshake with people that he could trust, then the, the loans were paid back and the business remained profitable. Yeah. It really is an amazing way to talk about people. And, you know, to say that, that humans and people are worthy of trusting because, you know, that that's really what he said. It was the core of his kind of principles. He said, let's trust people, not because of, you know, how much money they have, but because of what they want to do with it. Or, you know, they, they wanted to build their lives and houses. And I think it's really touching that that became such a successful vision and such a successful business. And uh, that makes for a touching story. I did have uh, one other question, kind of unrelated to the episode. I, you know, this this is an earlier episode, so if listeners go watch this on YouTube, you'll see that the quite the set the set looks quite different from how it does today. So <laughs> I wanted to ask uh, if you have anything to say about you know how you how you've kind of changed the set and kind of your your vision for how the set looks. I mean, certainly we've gotten better at a lot of things, cameras and and uh, microphones and lighting and stuff. You could look at some of those early episodes and it's clear that I was just, you know, I had no idea how to do things. I was just using the light in the, light in the roof there. But I do, anybody who knows me knows that I like to collect stuff. I like to collect funny, strange things. And so one of the things that I love about being a history guy is I get to display that. So what you've seen over time, I used to have my computer in the background and things like that. And, and over time, I've you know, devoted more and more shelf space to being able to show off stuff. Sometimes it's very relevant to the episode. Sometimes it's just funny and, and it's just there to show some of my personality too. And I love it when people notice. There are people who look all the time at the stuff in the back and say, is that is that a Bob Ross action figure? And I'm like, yes, I have a Bob Ross action figure. I have a Teddy Roosevelt action figure. I love that. And so it's it's fun to be able to display my collection and, and get people's interest at the stuff that's back there. And then we get the most amazing stuff in the mail from viewers. And I, the only promise I ever make is I say, I promise from time to time, this will pop up on set so that you can see it and say, hey, I sent that to the history guy. You know, I, I mean, I think it's really cool that you've spent so much time making sure that, you know, the set does change. And some people on YouTube, you know, oh. their set's always pretty much look the same. And I kind of like that yours changes all the time. Yeah. You know, I think some of them are using virtual sets. Uh, and uh, no, that that is not a virtual set. That <laughs> is my office. That is my stuff. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I wish I had, every time I do an episode, I'm like, oh, I don't have something <laughs> for this. You know, I don't have a picture for this. And then I, you know, I get it's too late now, but I go get it anyway. And so they, the collection keeps growing because I always think, you know, I, I have to put new stuff up on there. Uh, and, the, you know, it's fun. And part of the part of the fun for me, and I think part of the fun for the viewers is the 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 scavenger hunt, the Easter egg hunt yeah. of the stuff that's in the back there. And you see that evolving over time from the early episodes to the to the episodes today. Yeah, I, I remember for the, the Neon episode, I don't think it was actually Neon. It was like an LED kind of thing. But Well, ne neon, neon today is LED. It's almost impossible to get real Neon. To, that's what I found out today, yeah. But yeah. <laughs> we, we looked into, and I think we still might acquire, uh, because of that episode, which was another really fun episode, but uh, I might acquire a Neon, the history guy, bow tie side oh. sign. We'll see. Yeah, that'd be really cool. That would be, yeah. Yeah, th there are still some people doing that kind of, that real neon stuff, but it's usually on a pretty small yeah. scale. Well, you can do custom, but I mean, they mostly quote you for the uh, the LED stuff, which I, I wish I could get some more classic neon, because that's the, the, the more kitschy thing that we were looking for. Magellan TV is sponsoring this episode, and they sponsor all of our podcasts. And if you've listened to the podcast, you know that what we like to do is talk about what we've been watching on Magellan TV lately. And so what have you been watching on Magellan TV? 
That's oh, there's always so much to watch on Magellan TV. So I, I just recently watched one called the Chinguetti Meteorite, and I watched it because uh, it really felt like a History Guy episode, and it was an idea I had never seen before. It's in Martania, in the middle of the Sahara Desert, and this 19th century French diplomat. Uh, had heard that there was a local source of natural iron, which is very strange in the desert. And so he had gotten someone to show him the secret place where this was, and it appeared to him to be a huge iron meteorite, that if if his description was correct, would be the largest iron meteorite, the largest intact meteorite ever found on Earth. Uh, and he collected a piece that was clearly meteorite metal. It took years for it to wander its way back to France, but I mean, it's clearly meteorite metal, and then no one ever found it again. And they'd sent dozens of expeditions off wandering the Sahara Desert, and they can't find it. They don't know where it is. Uh, and so this is the story of a couple of experts on meteorites uh, that are taking an expedition off into the Sahara to, to make another attempt to find this meteorite. I won't spoil it more than that. It, but it is it's as much about you know what it takes to go out in the Sahara Desert and not die uh, as it is about the search for this meteorite, which is a very interesting history about how they came to looking for the meteorite. One of the reasons I love Magellan TV is you can find just, just so much variety of things to find out there and things that you never would have known if you, if you didn't have that subscription to Magellan TV. What have you been watching? So what I was just watching recently, and the one that I want to talk about, is called Vesuvius and the First Pompeii. And so what happened is they found these two skeletons pretty far from Pompeii, but it was clear that they had died from ash. But it would seem like when they found it that this was not the direction that the ash that buried Pompeii went. And we we might have mentioned this in the episode that we talked about uh, Vesuvius and Herculaneum, but they found a Bronze Age site buried under ash. And what they figured out is that this was a different Vesuvius eruption like uh, thousands of years before the one the the famous one that buried Pompeii in 79. And so they have found almost as perfectly preserved as Pompeii a bronze age site. And so this is a, a small village, there are several houses, they are much larger than they expected them to be, but we can also find, I mean, things that you just would not expect to find in almost any other situation. You wouldn't expect to find the leftovers of the trees and the thatch on their roofs, and it's given us a, a really interesting look at how people in the Bronze Age in central Italy were living, and essentially unprecedented, I and mean, we have almost nothing like this from the Bronze Age like that. Uh, and it, it kind of tells the story of how they found it, how they figured it out. And ultimately, the story, of course, of what happened to these Bronze Age people is is pretty sad. But it's really, really worth watching. And it's a really amazing thing that is so connected to Pompeii and that, you know, so few, so few people know about. And of course, if you are a listener or watcher of The History Guy, you can always go to try.magellantv.com slash historyguy where we will always have a deal for you, sometimes a free month or a deal on an annual membership or even a documentary that you can watch for free. Again, that's try.magellantv.com slash historyguy. Next up, the History Guy talks about the surprisingly old history of credit cards. And stay tuned after the episode to hear us chat a little more with the History Guy. The tradition of the Christmas shopping season starting the day after Thanksgiving likely harkens back to Thanksgiving Day parades, which, starting around the 1930s, traditionally had an appearance by Santa Claus at the end. The first use of the term Black Friday to refer to that shopping day, the day after Thanksgiving, was actually in an industrial journal in 1951, and it was referring to the number of employees who would call off sick that day in order to go shopping. 
The term didn't really become popular in the United States until the 1980s when retailers preferred a friendlier story, which said that retailers tend to operate at a debt until the Christmas shopping season. And so Black Friday represents the day when they move from red ink, means they're losing money, to black ink, meaning they're making profit. According to a household survey in 2018, consumers who added debt during the Christmas season added an average of $1,230. Almost all of that was placed on credit cards. Money lending is one of the world's oldest professions. Probably goes back to the beginning of society that someone would lend you goods or grain or some form of currency in exchange for interest. In fact, some of the earliest written laws deal with debt and interest. But the idea of a single piece of plastic that could be used to borrow and purchase almost everywhere took a long time to develop. On this Black Friday, the history of the credit card deserves to be remembered. 5,000 years ago, Mesopotamian civilizations were among the first to think of using a valueless physical object to take the place of large sums of cash. In Babylon's trade with the Harappan civilization, archaeologists have found clay tablets with each civilization's marks, and as promises that saved everyone from having to mint the huge amount of coin that would have had to have changed hands. In these ancient civilizations, and up into the modern era, one of the most common uses for credit was in loans of seeds that could be repaid with interest after the harvest. Until the 19th century, most debt and credit was established as an agreement between a single lender and a lendee. For the average person, banks were often not involved. The deals were between individuals and did not necessarily involve strict payment schedules. Some of these were tabs, which were settled informally, and of course, there were always money lenders, often unscrupulous, promising easy funds to cash-strapped farmers and businessmen, accompanied by high interest rates. The use of larger loans developed for the super wealthy and for businesses that would be backed by banks, but these are usually agreements that were made individually and usually for a fixed amount. The money could be used for a specific purpose, but it wasn't like a credit line that could be used anywhere for anything. The earliest modern predecessor to the credit card in the United States was a charge coin, first introduced in the 1860s. Charge coins were made of celluloid or metal and ranged in design from the simple to the detailed and ostentatious. They usually had some kind of a message on them, the name of a particular store and a number linked to the customer's account. These coins were distributed by a department store, or taxi service, or other business and were usually only usable at a single location. Holders of the coin would show it to the cashiers at purchase and they would check it against a paper ledger that would tell them if the account was up to date. These kinds of accounts usually needed to be paid off in full at the end of the month. If they weren't, debt collectors would go to the customer's house and repossess whatever it was that hadn't been paid for. By 1885, in addition to the charge coins, there were paper slips that served a similar purpose. These paper cards had a signature and were accepted only at a particular location, like the coins, although sometimes they might be accepted at competitors as well. If a person traveled, the card was useless, but to local businesses, this was a positive as it encouraged loyalty to their store. After the turn of the century, growing prosperity in the United States was putting more expensive purchases within reach, and more stores were extending credit to more people. By 1914, department stores all over the country offered credit to their customers. Western Union offered select customers metal plates that allowed them to defer payment. Gas companies like Texaco followed suit in the 20s and 30s with the growth of automobiles, offering cars that could be used to finance gas and car repairs at their stations. Their item of choice was a playing card-sized piece of paper, which helped to standardize the size of the credit cards in use today. In the late 1920s, a New York company introduced the charge-up plate, a small metal plate that looked like a dog tad, which often came with a leather cover. 
The plates would have identifying information embossed on one side, such as the user's name and address. Flipped into the back was a piece of paper that would be signed. When a customer made a purchase, the store could make an imprint of the card, helping to simplify bookkeeping. Charger cards remained in use until the 1950s, given to customers by large retailers like department stores. Sometimes the store even kept the card on hand, only imprinting it when the customer made a purchase. Networks for these kinds of cards grew out of deals between local businesses, who agreed to accept each other's plates. A large network of New York department stores, including Bloomingdale's and Gimbel's, joined together in 1948. In 1936, airlines got into the credit business with the introduction of an air travel card. Conceived initially by American Airlines and the Air Transport Association, the air travel card provided business flyers with the ability to sign a receipt for a ticket and then pay for the tickets later. It also gave them a 15% discount on one-way tickets. The program quickly expanded to be accepted by 17 airlines. In addition to a card, the system included a small charger plate, like TAG, that was used to take an imprint. By 1941, the card was accounting for half of the participating airlines' revenue. All of these systems relied on a direct relationship between the store and the customer. It wasn't until 1946 that banks became involved. John C. Biggins, a banker working at Flatbush National Bank in Brooklyn, New York, is often credited with coming up with the idea of a universal credit card. He introduced the Charge It, a deal between the bank, local businesses, and the bank clients. When customers paid with a Charge It card, the business would bill the bank, which would in turn collect the money from the customer. The basic rules for the modern credit card system were born. The Charge It card usually worked with the businesses that were within a few blocks of the bank, but banks all over the country started to follow suit, extending credit to their loyal customers by working with all the most popular stores in their area. In 1949, Frank McNamara was having dinner in New York. When it came time to pay the bill, he realized he had forgotten his wallet. Fortunately for him, his wife was able to pay for the meal, but it was apparently the spark for a bigger idea. In 1950, McNamara and his partner Ralph Schneider put together their idea for the Diners Club. Customers would pay a $3 subscription fee to get a Diners Club card, which would be accepted at its inception at 28 restaurants and two hotels in New York. In its first year, 10,000 of New York's elite joined the program. Alfred Bloomingdale, grandson of the founder of Bloomingdale's, started Dine in Sign the same year in Los Angeles, a similar program. Later that year, the groups met and merged, with Bloomingdale becoming vice president. The card was immensely popular, becoming accepted in Canada, Cuba, and Mexico in 1953, and reaching a million members by 1959. Bloomingdale predicted that the day will come when the plastic card will make money obsolete. As early as the 1930s, some department stores had introduced revolving credit, meaning that the bills did not have to be paid in full, but could be paid in installments over several months. In 1947, William Gorman instituted the concept at the L. Bamberger & Company department store, allowing customers to finance smaller purchases, such as clothing, over a six-month period with a 1% interest. The total had to be covered in six months because Gorman thought that it was psychologically unsound to continue paying for an item after it had worn out. In 1958, the Bank of America introduced the Bank AmeriCard, which would become Visa in California as the first general-purpose credit card accepted at more than just restaurants. They started the program with a splash. They mailed out 60,000 already activated credit cards to Fresno, California customers. Within 10 months, the Fresno drop had spread across the state, and more than a million of the cards had been mailed out. Though the inevitable fraud cost the company millions, the stunt was a success. In 1966, Bank of America began licensing the card to be issued by other banks, spreading the network nationwide. 
A merger in the 1970s resulted in the creation of Visa in 1976. Competitors proliferated. American Express introduced the first plastic cards in 1959, replacing cardboard and celluloid. The Interbank Card Association formed in 1966, led to rebranding as Master Charge and finally MasterCard. But while people could now carry the cards, they were incredibly vulnerable to fraud. Cards had raised numbers, which were imprinted onto carbon sheets using a zip-zap or knuckle-buster machine that would run over the card. This had to be delivered to the bank, where it would be manually checked against known fraudulent accounts, and that process could take days. In the 1960s, IBM employee Forrest Perry is credited with attaching a magnetic strip to CIA identity cards, and IBM quickly developed the technology, simultaneously creating the magnetic strip for cards and shortly the automatic teller machine, which allowed customers to remotely access their funds from a bank. The strip was introduced in a joint venture between American Express, American Airlines, and IBM at the Chicago O'Hare Airport in 1970, also streamlining the airline's ability to sell seats on the newly introduced Boeing 747s. It wasn't, however, until 1980 that the technology became cost-effective enough to be adopted by Visa and MasterCard. Magnetic strips, too, are vulnerable to fraud, so in the 1980s research was done that would lead to the EMV chip cards. EMV originally stood for the credit cards that founded the standard, Europay, MasterCard, and Visa. They were first introduced in Europe in the 1990s, and starting in 2015, U.S. retailers are required to accept chip cards or be liable for instances of fraud. A series of laws and decisions helped to shape American experiences with credit cards as well. In 1970, Congress passed the Unsolicited Credit Card Act, which made it illegal to send already activated cards to customers who had not requested one. In 1974, the Fair Credit Billing Act attempted to rein in deceptive credit card practices and require credit companies to allow customers to dispute charges. A 1978 Supreme Court ruling allowed nationally chartered banks to charge out-of-state customers the same interest rates as set in the bank's home state, which helped credit cards to take off nationally. According to the World Bank, in 2017, around two-thirds of Americans over the age of 15 have one or more credit cards, which is less than Canada, where nearly 82% of the people over the age of 15 have a credit card, but much more than Mexico, where only around 9% of the population has a credit card. But the future of credit cards has never been more uncertain, as there are new sorts of identification methods and mobile payment options, and these new options will probably lead to advantages and vulnerabilities and probably new regulations to deal with those. But in the last 150 years, credit has changed. It used to be something only available to the super wealthy, and now something available to, well, pretty much all of us. And that does allow us the opportunity to buy things we might not have purchased before. It's changed our entire understanding of cash and credit and purchasing and borrowing, but it also means that some of us are borrowing more than we can pay back. And the average American household carries around $6,300 in credit card debt. And no matter what the future of credit cards, you can assume that credit is still going to be around in some form, as it has been since the beginning of human society. So the first thing that always goes through my mind when I watch this episode is as we're going through kind of the, the history of credit as a concept, it must have been awfully hard for ancient people to keep track of things like credit. They're doing this, you know, literally because they can't mint enough coins. Between the empires, yeah, yeah. Well, and that developed over time because that was that was what the Templars did, right? Is that they kept track of credit over distance, and yeah, but yeah. At some point, you just had to trust yeah. that King, you know, 
Wadakabezer is going to actually pay you the fifty million you know ducats or whatever that he's promised. <laughs> yeah, you. and if he if he dies, that whoever comes next is going to pay that. Yeah, it's going to and and of course you know whether someone will loan you money depends upon whether you have acted honorably in terms of paying back money. So it's it's inter- you can see how credit developed, why credit was necessary, and then what it meant to try to protect credit. And as I you watch this, it's such a it, when you watch the development, it all just makes so much sense. But you can see why it took a very long time for that develop over time because it really does come down to trusting people with your you know your value yeah I, I mean you have to trust someone at some point in it and the truth is i mean that's that's true even today except that you know we've got like laws and people who will go and force that um yeah well but thank heavens we've gotten rid of debtors prison yeah i mean right? so, yeah that's also true and it wasn't always just for the very wealthy uh, credit in kind of the, the more modern way where they were you know keeping track of it on a ledger and they were having payments uh, that was more for the for the very wealthy but uh, there have always been money lenders and that was true in any ancient society that there was someone offering some kind of loans yeah, at least for a very long time. I mean, how far back they go back in civilization, I, you know, I don't know if we know, but there, money lending has been part of building civilization for as long as there's been civilization. You know, someone's going to have a vision that's going to require that someone else shares wealth with them in order to build that vision. That's going to require some, some idea of how that yeah. wealth is paid back or, you know, whether you buy get an interest in the business or whether you're, you know, you're going to be paid back with interest. I mean, you, you can't operate without it. I, I know sometimes debt gets a bad rap in modern society, but I mean, imagine trying to run modern society without it, you know, without being yeah. able to borrow and loan money. And then you'll then you'll see why you know maybe we shouldn't be quite so much worried about it. Uh, and not not that there's not reasons to worry about all sorts. I mean, it is not a political show. I don't want to talk to you about anything like national debt or personal debt or college debt or whatever. It's just to say that uh, you you can't imagine truly running any sort of large commercial society without some version of of loans and debt and credit. Yeah, I mean, even when you're kind of looking at small scales, uh, you know, one of the I think one of the ways that credit worked for for many many centuries for a really long time is credit in the form of seed loans Uh, you'd have someone loan these seeds to you at planting time and so you don't you know you don't have money when they're when you're planting them but when you've grown them uh, you get to Uh sell those grown plants and then you can pay back Uh the seed loans and you know that was that was fairly widespread yeah and someone someone realized that like you know we don't eat if we don't do the seeds and and uh, if i give the seeds and that's going to be paying back in terms of crop uh, and and realize that you know we have to help each other at those different times, and how do we keep track of that? Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, writing to some extent came about specifically because of you know the need to keep yeah. track of records. Some of the like earliest debt. forms of writing are clearly keeping track of records of things like commercial transactions, but really in terms of debts and loans and what you're going to pay back and what you get in exchange. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's uh, not not tied to to show horse trades uh, or the kipu that was kept in the in the Incan civilization those are i mean those were all intended as record keep might be tax income or something like that but they they work from that same idea that i mean you got to remember what somebody owes uh, or you don't get paid back right <laughs> yeah that's the I, I mean i'm sure through all time there are people who you know tried to avoid paying i mean I, that, that's why debtors prisons existed but either there were people you know who couldn't pay back or for for some reason trying yeah, to what, avoid what paying that? it yeah, yeah. And uh, that, of course, th- th- there was a time you could literally, you know, you could go get a loan in London and then just move to Paris, and uh, they might not be able to to do anything about that. You can still get credit there, and I, I don't think well, that's we start so true. tracking you with your credit score, so now yeah. we know, so now you won't be able to borrow money in Paris because you didn't pay it back in London. Yeah, yeah, there was a, there was a lot of trust involved, but these days there's a little less. You know, we've got we've got credit scores, and they, you're, you're always attached to some kind of digital thing, so they can always find you. 
you know, I think my favorite line in this video, though, is is Bloomingdale saying that credit cards will make money obsolete, which is nice. it's a lot of fun to read that, you know, from a modern perspective. Because they have. So how many times you even got cash in your wallet? Yeah. I mean, I think it took I mean, there were some innovations that were necessary for that. I think the ability to buy and sell online, uh, you made it so the cash didn't make any sense because you weren't going into stores anymore. Uh, debit cards, which were somewhat different than credit cards. I think that was a big part of that. Uh, but now it, it's it's really it's funny because, uh, you know, there was a good period where you had to say, you know, if I want to, you know, do they take credit cards at this restaurant? because I don't have cash. Uh, and now it's it's rare to find anybody who doesn't. I mean, now even you know small vendors at the county fair uh, can take credit cards. So it really has gotten to that point where you wonder why we even bother to print cash anymore. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you don't necessarily need it almost anywhere. And uh, I mean, you know, plenty of people use it. And cash registers still exist. It hasn't gone away completely. But yeah, I, I hardly ever carry cash. It's, it seems to be headed that way, yeah. Yeah, I, don't, I was watching a movie on bank robbery last night. I'm like, how are you going to go spend a million bucks? They're going to know you stole it because you got more <laughs> yeah. than five bucks in your wallet. You know, you, if, if, you, if you've got a larger sum in your wallet than you can take out of an ATM, they know you're a bank robber. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, if it's a large sum, I mean, no one at this point is, you know, making that. Well, I, I guess I shouldn't say no one, but almost no one is making a $1,000 purchase no, in cash yeah, yeah. these days. Yeah. I, you know, even if you have it in cash someplace, you're probably doing that over a computer. It would it would be easier to launder the Mona Lisa than a million dollars in bills. <laughs> uh, Someone stole, stole a million dollars while the crazy guy down the street buys his groceries in cash. Yeah. <laughs> it's the Trying only possible explanation. Anyone who'll take, take a million dollars. Uh, you know, and it's 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 changing. It's incredible how yeah. much it has changed and how it will continue to change. I mean, I've been thinking about, uh, you, you know, this episode connects to the last one in an interesting way because the Bank of America, well past Giannini's days, but it uh -huh. was the first bank to send out these you know universal credit cards, this yeah. idea that these cards you could just spend anywhere. Uh, that would eventually become Visa. So I think it's interesting uh -huh. that, you know, this this bank that was a part of such a transformational change was also, uh -huh. years later, involved uh -huh. in making another huge change. I think Giannini would have supported the idea that, of what, where credit cards have gone to, which is essentially both credit and debit cards, but essentially says that you can make the money work for anybody of, you know, any income level. You can figure out a way that they can, you know, borrow on the small scale what they need to get through the day and be able to pay that back in a way that's going to help to build society and the community. And I wonder how many people ran up debt during COVID, but I mean, isn't it nice that you have the ability to do that uh, aside from, you know, yeah, because yeah. uh, otherwise you might not have had food, you know? Yeah, and I mean, it can be a double-edged sword, you know, there, there are negatives about that too, uh, totally apart from politics, uh, but there, there's a benefit to being able to buy things uh, you wouldn't be able to afford otherwise. Yeah. And, uh, you yeah. know, that's one of the things that credit cards enable. And, you know, um, credit cards, they changed credit. Uh, with with a credit card, it's not like a small loan. You don't have to ask anyone to make that purchase, yep. as you know, as long as you are willing to pay it back. <laughs> and there was, well, they learned a lot on the way. A lot of people got in trouble with credit cards. This is, you know, we don't, we don't, not only we do not take political stands. I, I don't think we're trying to argue. You know, credit good, get a credit card, you know, run <laughs> yeah, up your cards. No, no. Uh, but it is, it is to say what I mean. And the evolution that you see in this episode, which by the way, Josh wrote this episode, but uh, the evolution that you see in this episode makes so much sense, and it's just mm -hmm. interesting to watch. And the, you know, the idea of the original, some of those original uh, little credit cards, we acquired some of those, and then Josh yeah. put them in his, his collection. Yeah, and, and they're they're nifty to see, uh, and th they were sometimes stolen, they were sometimes fraudulently used, uh, but uh, because that you know that's the nature of when you you know borrow them, people are going to maybe borrow things that they shouldn't, but uh, it. 
when you look at how it all evolved, you can really say, how could we even basically run the world that we run today uh, if we didn't have that and, and how it evolved over time? And I, like I said, I think AP Giannini would probably approve and say that, you know, uh, he didn't like money itch or anything like that, but he did like the idea that anybody of any income level should be able to make their money work for them. And credit cards can help you do that. They can. And, you know, those little cards, it's amazing in some ways how fast it changed. You know, it went from these coins, which were honestly, mm -hmm. I mean, they, they were almost as simple as what they were doing, you know, hundreds of years before that, where uh, you have a coin with a number on it and you're just like, you know, make a purchase on 102 and then you flash your coin and the, they go put that on a mm -hmm. ledger someplace. Uh, but it's also amazing how long it has really been because uh, when when we're talking about uh, those charge it cards, those little metal, those little metal plates uh, were, were really cool. Uh, but I had a hard time finding anyone who had actually like used one. Uh, I talked to my grandpa and he like maybe recalled them. And I, that, that might be because he's from somewhere pretty rural. Uh, but these, these were things that were mostly used mm -hmm. between like the twenties and the fifties before we started using other things. But it's interesting how we went from kind of one thing to another very really very practically and the, you know the businesses were like hey and how can we get people to spend more money here and then it, it kind of evolved into what it has become today and in some ways that's that's so different from giannini who was this one guy who had all these ideas mm -hmm. on how to change things and kind of you know thought of this had this vision for a whole foundation of a new system uh, to something that really kind of happened you know kind of kind of more ad hoc things kind of gathered slowly because what Bloomingdale was talking about when he mentioned, you know, cash becoming obsolete, it was the diners club cards, which, which I've never seen, but they, they were not even necessarily, you know, it took a while for those to be accepted. Mm -hmm. it's, I, it's not, I, I, when I worked at a university many years ago, that was the university credit card. And it was funny because when we traveled for the university, you're trying to charge gas, find a gas station in the middle of the night, takes diners club, uh, or, or you're stuck there for the night and then you got to find a hotel that takes diners club. Oh man, I don't know who made that decision, but I, and I think it's like maybe a little more broadly accepted today. Uh, I mean, but that's, you know, it came, it, it started with someone who said, Oh, I forgot to bring my purse. Uh, when I'm buying, uh, you know, when I'm when I'm going out to lunch and they're saying, you know, why, you know, why don't we have a system where you can, you know, make your money much more portable uh, because we know you're good for it. Yeah. And, and now, we, you know, we have these systems of revolving credit that people really rely upon. And again, you know, apart from whether that's good or bad, it's something that occurred uh, historically. And you can see how it was such a logical shift. And it's amazing, you know, we've gone from this place where even in the 90s, you know, when they were sending out cards, these already active cards, <laughs> and you can see, you know, how that had some uh, problems with fraud. Although, of course, you know, there, there's still fraud, I and mean, that's something that happens with credit cards. But it's it's really interesting how that changes. And you know, one of the things that really surprised me mm -hmm. when I was researching this episode uh, were EMV chips. It's a it's a very recent thing in the United States that you know where all the where everything can accept those cards, but and all cards are going to have those chips. But that was something that like very actually was actually invented in the 1990s, and it was something that mm -hmm. was required in Europe years before it was required in the United States. Yeah, yeah. I traveled in Europe when all the European cards had them and our cards didn't, and it was it was actually kind of difficult to, to you know buy petrol in Europe with a car that didn't have a chip on it. You know, sometimes it had to actually dial a phone number in order to be able to use your card. I don't know why the US is behind on that sometimes. Yeah, yeah I, I know that gas stations were like really slow to change here. And I know it's only in the past couple of years that like a lot of the gas mm -hmm. stations that were near me fully upgraded to a system that could accept chip cards. And what's funny to me is that I'll go to Loaf and Jug and they don't work quite right. Uh, somehow they don't, they don't like read the card. So what they do is they, they take another card and they like shove it in the chip reader. Oh, to push and it's it funny up to me. <laughs> it's funny to me That's how like, these know, uh, technologies yeah. went from being like, you know, new to looking as janky as anything else inside a loaf and jug. <laughs>
Well, and you know, it, we're to the point now where you're just going to wave your credit card over the over the machine, and that's that's how it's all going to work. <laughs> yeah, you know, the other day I uh, was at a gas station. I happened to not have a card, and I uh, right there, like while you know I was actually waiting in line, I changed the. I went into my phone, and I was able to add. Uh, one of my cards on onto like some kind of you know Samsung Pay or something like that, and then uh, as soon as I did that, you know, then I could just wave the phone physically over the the card reader, and I mean that's that's incredible. You know, that's a change from you don't even have to have a card on hand. You've usually you just got this other thing you carry with you around all the time, and now that itself can be used to buy things. I think that's really just kind of an amazing change. Yeah, yeah that your phone can be your credit card. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, well, it makes me kind of wonder, you know, I mean, how this stuff is going to change in the future. Yeah, it's really going to, who's going to have a dime anymore, though? Who's going to carry <laughs> money of any kind? You know? Yeah, the, It'll be a thing of the past. No need yeah. for change because anymore. Ancient is, they'll be talking about, they'll be talking about dimes the same way we talk about Roman coins these days. Like, you're right, look at these, these quaint little antique things the oldsters used to use back in the day. <laughs> What'd you do with this? Yeah, you buried it in your backyard. Of course, it'll you know it'll be a bad day when the power goes That's out. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but th- there's still some advantages to cash, you know. But most people don't uh, carry them carry that much around anymore. And the convenience of it is just it's really hard to beat. And you can do it anywhere. You know, you were mentioning like at the craft shows. Uh, it's one of those things that used to be always cash. You know, they couldn't accept anything else. And uh, now, man, anyone can get a thing they can plug into their phone. Uh, yeah. you, you know, you see little old ladies with a with a. A square reader or something like that in their phone and they can yeah, almost take a credit card anywhere credit card for almost anything, yeah. yeah yeah anywhere in the world it is so it's it's cool to see that's history changing as we speak uh so this this history of credit cards really fascinating story uh because we've become so connected to them today to imagine it wasn't that long ago when we didn't have that uh and uh, i certainly there's a lot of people my age that remember those knuckle breakers those uh, and and uh, you know and uh, and now they are such a simple part of life we do so much of our shopping and buying without ever bothering to go to a bank. Uh, and it's, it's incredible. And, you know, we, you wonder, you know, what will this episode be like in 10 or 20 years uh, as we talk about the history that's gone on since then? Because so much changed over such a short period of time with it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Forgotten History. And if you did, you can find more on our website, thehistoryguy.com. We release podcasts every two weeks, so stick around if you want to hear more podcasts of Forgotten History. You can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.